Good morning, Cedar Park. I'm going to be reading from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. And as I do, I want you to imagine yourself centuries ago living in the ancient Near East, meeting with a group of Jesus followers. You never actually got to see Jesus do his miracles. Uh, you just heard the stories. You never met him. But you're about to get a letter from John, who declares his first person hands-on experience with Jesus, the living word of life. Read with me now. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thank you, Linda, for sharing the gospel reading or the, our New Testament passage with us today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's beloved said together, Amen. So over the next two months, we're going to be exploring this little letter that is tucked near the back of our Bibles. The letter is most likely written by John, who's one of the 12 apostles, one of the original 12, also known as the beloved disciple, the disciple Jesus loved. The letter was originally written and sent to churches in the area of Asia Minor, which is found on a map today as Turkey. And the letter has five short chapters, but they contain some of the most memorable lines in the entire New Testament. It's in 1 John where we hear the good news that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John is where we learn what love is. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John is where we find out who God is. God is light and God is love. 1 John is where we, we, we find out who we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God. This is a good letter, friends. And today we're going to look at the, the prologue, the opening first four verses, and we'll explore why this letter was written in the first place. And there's three themes that we're going to pause 
uh, along the way on to see if anyone has an insight or a story to help contextualize what can otherwise be a little bit abstract. So three questions to help us engage with these verses are these. In your life, who, whether it be a person or a community, has been a witness to the life of Jesus? When have you experienced fellowship? That word comes up a few times in these verses. And how do you understand the spiritual significance of joy? So to recap, witness, fellowship, and joy are our themes this morning. First, witness. A witness is someone who has experienced something. And to bear witness is to testify to what you've experienced. In this letter, John, perhaps the disciple Jesus loved, bears witness to what he has seen, looked at, heard, and touched with his hands. Hands-on experience, as Linda said. And as the Anabaptists say, John is giving zeichnis. And maybe somebody who speaks better German than me will give us a definitive pronunciation here later when we pause to share. But zeichnis is a report, a testimony, it's evidence. And this is what John is doing in this letter. He's saying, friends, let me tell you what I know to be true. Not because I read it in a book but because I've seen it with my own two eyes, because I've sensed it with the eye of my heart. I, I felt his skin, Jesus' skin with my fingers when he suddenly appeared a few days after he was crucified. I watched Thomas put his hand into the wound of a dead man risen from the grave. I saw a dead man walking. You see, when you hear or read about something that really catches your interest, you might become an enthusiast. And if your enthusiasm grows over time, you might want to convince other people to like it or believe in it too. And then you'd become an apologist. But John is not trying to hype up a crowd like an eager enthusiast, nor is he trying to mentally arm wrestle anyone into belief like an aggressive apologist. John, you see, is a witness. He's experienced something, eternal life, abundant life. The embodiment of life itself has been revealed to him. He has seen, touched, and heard someone, someone who has existed from the beginning, someone who embodies the future, who came into John's present and changed his life forever. John has experienced Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Word of Life, life himself, and John has become a witness. When something appears before your very eyes, when something happens to you that sends what feels like electricity coursing through your body, when you see, touch, and hear something significant, you become a witness to something. Not just an enthusiast who reads about it, nor an apologet or an apologist who constructs arguments about it, but a witness who simply talks about what you've seen, touched, sensed, and heard. So here is John. He's perhaps in his 80s. He's the last of the 12 original apostles still alive. And he's still telling the story of what happened to him and what he learned about life 50 years ago when he experienced Jesus and it changed his life. 
And at this point, we pause and ponder our first question. And let me come at it from a few angles, hoping one will be compelling to someone who in your life has been a witness to the life of Jesus. Who told you about their experience of Jesus in a compelling way? Who has shown you what Jesus looks like? Is there someone who has showed you Jesus through their own life? If there's an example from your life of somebody who's been a good witness or a community who's been a good witness showing you who Jesus is, feel free to unmute yourself and share a story or a few comments. For me, I think a professor of mine at Regent College, Daryl Johnson, has been a powerful witness in my life. Um, through his teaching and personal sharing, he, more than most people I know, has pointed to Jesus, shared how Jesus has met him through tragedies, through global sort of uprisings when he was in the Philippines during the, the, the people power revolution. He has shown me, he's been a witness to the living God, Jesus, who intersects with our lives in both small and huge ways. So for the witness of Daryl, who's pointed me to Jesus, I am thankful. There's a few things in the chats coming in. Dora's saying her parents have shown her who Jesus is. Selma agrees and says, especially my mom. This is often how we get to know Jesus. Somebody bears witness to him, points us to his work in history and in the world today. We'll continue and feel free to share when we pause again. We can come back to this question. So John's writing to a network of house churches, as we said, in Asia Minor, in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. And these are second or third generation Christians. And for some, the honeymoon period of Christianity was over. Maybe that powerful ripple of energy that was initially sent out from Jerusalem at Pentecost somehow seemed to sort of slow down. Some, Jesus, some Jewish Jesus followers were even being persecuted. And as excitement waned and danger set in, some became interested in a more novel theology to kind of spice things up. They were looking for something new. And throughout his letter, John will refer to a group of people. He calls them deceivers, liars. 
anti-messiahs and false prophets. And biblical scholars don't know exactly what kind of distorted version of the gospel these folks were were peddling. Many think it had to do with a, a combination of mysticism and philosophy called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics viewed the material world as evil and the spiritual world as good. And for some, it was unthinkable that the Son of God or the Messiah could be associated with, with flesh. And a form of Gnosticism called Docetism developed, spreading the belief that Jesus only seemed to have a real body. To the Docetists, Jesus was really just a spirit, a kind of friendly ghosts like a Casper Jesus you know, pretending to be a human being. The idea of a crucified Messiah, a God who was too weak to stand up a Roman who got crucified and nailed to a cross, was an embarrassment. I mean, Paul even admits it. Christ crucified is a stumbling block, he says, to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So some began denying that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. He was more of an illusionist, they said, who appeared to have a body, but who really was a spirit hovering above a dirty world. But John is no Gnostic enthusiast or a docetic apologist trying to sell an image of a whitewashed, varnished Jesus. John is a witness to a God he has seen, touched, and heard, a God who was beaten, who bled, and was buried, a God who rose from the grave bearing the marks of trauma, mangled flesh, and a gaping wound in his side. And yet, we may yawn at the thought of first-century theological controversies. But biblical scholar Obery Hendricks warns that a docetic ghost still haunts the church today. He says, Today, Christianity is faced with a development that in its distorted presentation of Jesus' life and ministry rivals the grandest denials of the docetic heresy of old. It is a notion that sadly is unwittingly embraced by millions of Christians. In various ways, it is articulated every Sunday. And to varying degrees, it holds sway over every Christian denomination. It is not the heresy of denying the flesh and blood existence of Jesus in the world. It is the heresy of refusing to acknowledge the importance of the political circumstances of Jesus' earthly life and their influence on his person and his ministry. The political docetism of the church takes several forms, he goes on to say. The most widely held form asserts that Jesus was just a spiritual leader with absolutely no interest in social and political issues, that his concern was not to challenge the harsh institutional immorality of the social order in which he was born, but only to change the morality of individuals. The unholy ghost of docetism haunts the world, by spreading the image of a wholly interiorized Jesus who is totally uninterested in engaging in a dirty, messy, complex political world. But John bears witness to an embodied Messiah whose Holy Ghost once moved like electricity through his body, down through his hands, and, and, and into Samaritan bodies crossing chasms of ethnicity and culture. We read that in the book of Acts in the 8th chapter. So John testifies to what his hands know to be true. Jesus was born, died, and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven in the flesh. 
He is no mere good idea, inspiring metaphor, or novel theology. Jesus is Lord, cosmic Christ, word of life, proclaimed so that we might know his fellowship. Fellowship, that word in the Greek is koinonia. Some of you may know that. It means to share in or participate in communion or in close mutual relationship. And for John, this fellowship is ultimately rooted in God, in the very being of God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are understood as one God in three persons. And as Daryl Johnson has said, that good witness who points so many to Jesus, there is a multiplicity, a plurality within the unity of God's being. So the fellowship of God, the fellowship that is God, is made up of a unity and a diversity, a plurality and a multiplicity of God's being, unified being. Godly unity contains diversity, not uniformity. That is why, friends, when we gather as Cedar Park Church in the name of Jesus for conversation, we intentionally affirm our diversity and our unity. We embrace our diversity, saying God has created us as unique people, and we will rarely agree on every subject, and this is normal and healthy, friends. Disagreement is not the same as discord. And we affirm our unity, stating that our shared humanity and unity in Christ are far greater than any categories that may divide us. Unity does not require uniformity. We are all part of God's imperfect and beloved family. If there was no diversity in the church or in our church, we would be no different than any other affinity club here in Delta. It'd be like the Rotary or like the Lawn Bowling Club down the road, or like the Delta Pickleball Association. All great folks I was hanging out with some of them uh, a few days ago, but not the church. The fact that we are a group of very different people with different opinions held together by the gravitas of the, the gravitas of the love of God is one of the very things that makes us a church and not an affinity group or a social club. Perhaps there is wisdom to the common saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all, charity. And as one of the twelve apostles, John has been drawn into this diverse fellowship centered on Jesus. It's made up of fishermen and a tax collector who was a government worker and a zealot who hates the government all drawn together by the gravitas of God's love, these disciples are brought into the fellowship, the quinonia, the exchange of love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, giving and receiving, receiving and giving, not as a transaction based on debt. Okay, you did this for me, now I have to do it to you because I'm indebted, but as free participation in the gratuitous flow of God's grace. That is the fellowship of God that we are invited into as God's people. And so we pause one more time, wondering, who has pointed us to Jesus? And when have we experienced fellowship, a community of mutuality, of giving and receiving, of difference and yet unity, and loving across difference, 
a community, a fellowship that participates in the gratuitous rhythm of God. When have you experienced that fellowship? Community of mutuality, participating in the gratuitous rhythm of God. Not as transaction, but as free participation. Has anyone had a hint of that fellowship? Let's pause again. Good morning, Lee. Hey, Carol. Uh, I've experienced, experienced this, I think, on my many trips to Thailand and being in the company of the, the young people in their churches, Tong and Bang Phli and Bang Sai. Um, and I think Lisa Somerville, my friend here, and Louise Sinclair Peters have certainly guided me in this direction. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Mm. Thanks, Carol. Thank it's so important for us to, to put some, some, some flesh around these abstract concepts, because if they stay abstract concepts, we slip in the, into the docetic heresy quite quickly. I'm seeing Jim is lifting up Eddie Z, a recovering heroin addict and alcoholic from Philadelphia. Eddie founded The Last Stop that has provided shelter and hope to addicts and alcoholics for over 25 years. I assume Eddie Z has been somebody who has um, testified, has been a witness, a pointer to the mercy of Christ. Hey, Darren, I'm going to put you on the spot here, my friend. You have lived and experimented with various kinds of community centered in Christ, participating in Quinonia with a free flow and sharing of resources of money, mortgage, food, property. Have you tasted or participated in a bit of that godly Quinonia? Or are you still looking for it? Yeah, there's always more. There's always one to be experienced. Um, maybe I have, you know, uh, experienced a correlation between the um, yeah the fellowship of God um, in community and the uh, and the sharing of resources. There tends to be a an, uh, a real inextricable link there. Perhaps it is the um, the way that our, our resources um, focus so much of our energy and our time and attention, and so when we, when we share and let go, there's um, in that surrender there is there is participation in the community of God. I don't know. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, I, yeah, I've experienced it, uh, in small portion. Uh, and as so much of my my resources uh, and uh, time are focused on, you know, my my nuclear family, there is uh, there's so much more for me to me to experience and share and lead others into as well. Thanks, Darren. I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, these acts two and four, when it seems there's this powerful move of the spirit 
this, this quinonia, this entering in, participating in communion with God in a powerful way by the Spirit. And then there's this sharing also, not just of love and grace and joy, but also of goods, of, of resources, finances seem to flow in those little those vignette, vignettes we get. I'm seeing here in the chat, um, Christina writes, working at summer camp, Camp Squia gave me a glimpse into this fellowship for a few summers. Yeah, I think many of us have powerful um, examples and experiences from, from camp where there's this beautiful integration of, of worship and life with God in the context of community and a flow back and forth. It's a great example. Sarah was gonna say the same thing Carol says the community of Cedar Park and Centerpiece has provided amazing community for me this past year. And I'd say Can I say something? Yeah, hey, Megan. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> um, Lindsay and Luke Flaming, when they lived here, Lindsay opened her home up every Wednesday morning and just invited anybody who wanted to come over to come over and have coffee. And she shared her home. She carried coffee. We all brought cookies or whatever we wanted to share. And that was a, a huge spot of fellowship for us because we're all different people. We didn't really know each other. I didn't really know anybody in Ladner at that time. It was my first time with kids and the church was new. And so, um, yeah, just the sharing of the home was a really big, big, big thing for me and us. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. I love that picture of hospitality. Anyone else will pause for another few moments before we transition here to the Lord's table. We, we might just jump, jump in. Um, yeah. We, we had an experience uh, when we were with um, MCC in uh, Zaire. Um, for some reason, our house was struck by lightning and um, it was a wooden house and um, it uh and our, our children were in there as little babes and um i i had gone to the my workplace and rosemary is by herself but anyway the outcome was um although our house was struck uh, and a tree died in the process as the it was quite horrific but um the community came around uh that afternoon and the following day or or two or three days, just uh, thanking God that we had been safe and uh, sound. And um, there was a similar experience with that community. Uh, our middle son, we gave birth to in this uh, little mission uh, in the bush in Zaire. And um, the whole community came around the clinic and in a sort of a a, a great fellowship and a sense of fellowship and God's community supporting us in in that whole process. It was a caesarean. It, it was a caesarean in the bush in Zaire, so it wasn't any ordinary birth. But, but the community was there, you know, in in support. It was a wonderful sense of being part of God, uh, of Christ's body, right, right in Zaire. Wow. What great, great stories of, of Quenonia incarnate, enfleshed. So good. Thank you. Can I share one more, Lee? Yeah, please. Barbara. I got time. 
Um, a number of years ago, decades ago, actually, I spent a fair amount of time with um, a number of people who have, were incarcerated. And uh, that, that time was a real joy of fellowship and pe meeting people from various backgrounds, uh, very different backgrounds, and, um, and finding out those that truly loved to worship the Lord and to be together in communion. Uh, we had regular communion times. It was just uh, an, a unique experience of fellowship that we had during those times. Thanks, Barbara. Lee, I'm reminded of the first times that we met with um, the North of 60 group. Hmm. And when that came together and the times that we were sitting around in a room together, walking about and sharing stories and talking praying i mean it was just that was fellowship for me was wonderful a little bit different on zoom but you still have a connection yeah yeah thanks heather for for lifting up that uh, amazing ministry in our midst embodying the fellowship of god drawing people in i also see in the chat being a part of the Kinbrace community, I'm assuming this is Julie writing, refugee housing and support in East Vancouver, experiencing mutual transformation with those seeking peace and safety in a new place. Welcome is extended in both directions. That's a key piece of Quinonia. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, we can continue to share after communion but this may be a good time to transition in a moment i'm going to invite john and joan gosen to lead us to christ's table but i want to draw our attention to a famous picture many of us know this and we've heard this before but it is good to repeat things and to 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 name these truths again and again this is the rublev icon painted in the 15th century by andre rublev it's often called the trinity depicting the story of Abraham's visitation with the three angels. Figures also represent Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and notice that the Rublev um, icon is painted so that there's a space open at the front. And notice also that there's a small rectangle below the chalice on the, 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 the vertical plane of the table. You can see that small rectangle. Some art historians say that there's a residue of glue in that rectangle, suggesting that there was perhaps once a mirror attached to the painting. The idea being that when you contemplated the icon, you'd see yourself seated at the table in fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The icon invites us, the viewer, to the table and represents God's gracious invitation to join the fellowship of God, to step into the flow of God's grace that flows into us and through us and into others and back to God in that mutuality in both directions that we were just reading about. And the introduction of this letter uh, ends in verse 4 by saying, We are writing these things. Those who've seen Jesus and, and touched him and hung out with him and tasted his hospitality, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete suggesting joy is made complete when it's shared. Joy finds its fulfillment 
through hospitality, as Megan spoke about, by welcoming others to share in the joy we know our joy is made complete. And so maybe in coming to the table today to participate in communion, God's joy finds more fulfillment in the sharing. So John and Joan, would you lead us to the table? Good morning. Um, communion is an embodied practice.